You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 18th of November 2022 on Monocle 24. Qatar's World Cup will be even drier than expected. COP27 goes into extra time and the tourism minister of Jamaica is here of his own accord. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers who told the least believable stories about a domestic emergency they had to attend to urgently, like a fire or a flood or a zebra in the bathroom or something, are Laura Kramer and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. They'll discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from the chair of the Halifax International Security Forum as this year's conference gets underway. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Monocle's senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco and by Monocle 24 producer Laura Kramer. Hello to you both. Hello. Pleasure to be here as always. We forgot to think of a light introductory banter topic. <laughs> has, has, has anybody got anything? I have uh, nothing to promote. I'm very happy. Nothing to promote, but my mum just landed, actually. So after here, I'm going to meet her for a drink. I've got scallops upstairs. So you've got your mum, Fernando, and you, Laura, have scallops. <laughs> That's right. Which one is the best? It's really important. Okay, I think it's probably best all round if we move along, but I think hello to Fernando's mum if she's listening. Um, We will start with the World Cup. 48 hours from now, the 2022 World Cup will have started. The opening ceremony, whether objectively any good or not, will have been mocked, ridiculed and jeered online by a gleeful global audience, assuming Twitter is still a thing by Sunday. The first game between Qatar and Ecuador will have been played to the complete indifference Difference of 7,979,822,300 people, which, yes, is Earth's population minus those of Qatar and Ecuador. No offence to those listeners we have in Qatar and Ecuador, or had until just then. Those attending the opening match in person will not be able to avail themselves of the option of drinking through it. In a last-minute twist, abstemious Qatar has banned alcohol sales inside stadiums. Um... Laura, uh, listeners to the Foreign Desk Explainer, and let's face it, who isn't, will have heard this week a litany of reasons why it is ridiculous that Qatar is hosting the World Cup. Is this another one? Oh, absolutely. It was already an issue for me that it was going to be just beer to begin with, with Budweiser being one of the sponsors. But now nothing. I, I'm sorry. And I feel especially bad for the English fans, because as everybody knows, how do you watch England play sober? I mean, I I think we are so far doing quite well at rising above all the jokes about how you won't be able to buy Budweiser inside the stadiums and there's no beer either. (laughs) Um, But, but, but Fernando, this is the kind of thing that nobody should be surprised by by this point. I mean, Budweiser sounds surprised and it it does seem like there will be uh, legal intercession or retribution attempted. But 
Qatar was never going to adjust readily to the entire world descending on it, was it? Exactly. Although I, I've heard, I mean, I, you know, I might be spreading a rumor that the VIP tickets, they will be served champagne. So, I mean, we should look into that, actually. You know, there's a dispute of classes there. But yes, I mean, to be honest, when I watch football, especially the World Cup, I do need a beer in hand. I think that's an essential item, in fact. So, yeah, I, that would be a reason, uh, you know, not to go to Qatar. Besides... The other reasons, even though, Andres, you know, I am anti-boycott, but uh, even though I understand very much the people that want to do that, uh, but I, I know it's it's a very difficult subject. You know, I, I kept thinking the whole day, in fact, uh, to talk to you here on the Monaco Daily. Because people arriving in Qatar, Laura, are discovering things like dress codes about which the Qataris are really not joking. Yes, I've got uh, friends who are journalists. They're covering the event and they've sent me photos photos of posters they have around that show what's inappropriate and these signs are quite scary because it can be a tank top or shorts that are too short for the men at least the shorts are meant to be beneath the uh, below the knee and that they warn that you could be imprisoned for up to six months there are also signs that warn that should you get pregnant outside of marriage or before marriage, either you or your partner could be imprisoned or deported. I mean, you'd need to be quick. The World Cup's <laughs> only, it's only a month. Well, I don't even know how you'd be able to actually do that because one of my friends said that actually police came into his hotel because they thought an unmarried couple were in the same room together. So it's it's a very tricky situation to navigate <laughs> I mean, I, I myself, Fernando, and we have had variations on this conversation before, the, the idea of grown men going out in public wearing tank tops and shorts being imprisoned for six months is one I am frankly all aboard for. But I do, I do realise there is a wider context here. Um, I just want to go back to the thing you were talking about, about how you will not be boycotting it. We were discussing, uh, I think quite recently, your mm -hmm. views of the Brazil shirt while you were wearing it. But if you're not boycotting it. Do you think that your enjoyment of it will be reduced by the fact that it is being held, where it is being held, and also when it is being held? No, to be honest, yes. And especially because, you know, I will be watching the World Cup from the UK. And I have to say, the coverage has been very muted mm. uh, here compared to previous World Cups. I mean, of course, here in the office, you know, people like football. I mean, people do enjoy the World Cup. But I know some countries are very, they feel a little bit insecure, even the TV co coverage, you know. It's not about, usually, for example, if it's in Brazil, let's see the wonders of Rio de Janeiro. I see much less of that. They're really talking, if it's strictly about the football or very critical uh, of Qatar, which I think is totally fine. And of course, it will affect the way I enjoy the tournament. And the only reason I'm not boycotting is not that I'm in favor of what the Qataris are doing. I think it's awful, you know, terrible human rights. And the fact that they're anti-gay, I mean, this is just absurd. The only thing I see that, you know, what about... You know, Russia had the last World Cup. China also had many mm -hmm. issues with human rights. So I'm just saying, you know, maybe Qatar is a smaller country and it's kind of easy to, to, to pick on Qatar a little bit. So it's fine. But then if you look, I mean, the COP27 was in Egypt as well. It's just very hard to boycott a country these days because, you know, no one is perfect. But I know Qatar has severe problems. And I, and I have to say on air here, FIFA, I think... You know, some might say that is quite a corrupt organization as well. FIFA? <laughs> I was trying to be as diplomatic Fernando, as I can. My God. Which is a shame. I love football. I love World Cup. It, it is a hard one for me. Um, Laura, Fernando does raise an interesting question there of how broadcasters should deal with 
the other stuff. I mean, FIFA, Qatari authorities, as people in charge always do at this thing, things like this, always say sport and politics shouldn't mix, which is nonsense. There is no way that sport and politics cannot mix. All the reasons Qatar wanted to host the World Cup are political. But what do broadcasters do? Um, I do recall before the China Winter Olympics... The BBC, before the opening ceremony, broadcast actually quite a serious, well-put-together package explaining, you know, basically, here is why some people don't think this games or these games should be being held in China. Um, does Qatar need to be held to the same sort of standard? I think countries are taking it... Uh, how how they, I guess, how they're approaching it. Finland's largest newspaper, actually, ended up won't sending reporters after Qatar evicted migrant workers from uh, to create lodging for their own mm-hmm. journalists. And so they've actually decided to, to move away and, and pull out of that. And like you said, to your point about sports and politics, we look at Iran. We've seen their players uh, trying to show subtle support for the protests that are happening, either by not singing the national anthem or accidentally or not dropping their hijabs as they're performing. Um, so it's a very complex issue to look at and and broadcasters are going to take whatever way they can look into it. And I think it's fantastic you mentioned the Iranian thing. I mean, yes, and and that's another reason for me not to boycott, in fact, because you can do certain things while in Qatar. Of course, please be careful of your safety. And, you know, but but you can. You you know, when Lufthansa took the German uh, thing, I think in the plane it was written diversity for all, something Mm -hmm. like that. It's some minor things, but I think can only help. Um, what adjustments, though, should people make to the Qatari strictures? Because there, there is a clash, and I'll ask you first, Laura, between the when in Rome do as the Romans do, which is, is usually actually quite good counsel. You don't want to go, and nor should you want to go to someone else's country and make a jerk of yourself. But if you are going there to compete in what is a global event, to what extent should you refuse to submit? Well, I think it depends on how powerful you are, really, because you can have somebody like the captain of the English football team wearing like a little pride flag or indeed the entire England team going on on a plane that is alluding to it being pride. It it would be a bold move to arrest Harry Kane. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And so that's it's it's a I think it's a question of privilege on how much you can essentially get away with. You can have your own little minor things that you do to yourself. But I mean, and also whether you're a woman, whether you yourself are a, a person who's queer or identify that way, it, it, it's really subjective. I know I've traveled by myself in certain countries that whether or not I agreed with their stance on things, just for my own safety, I decided mm. to take mm. measures that I wouldn't usually take just to make sure that I'm all right. So I think privilege does actually kind of come into it a lot. Well, just finally on this subject, I will ask you each in turn, starting with you, Fernando, despite everything and what we have talked about in these last few minutes is not even the half of it. Despite everything, if we are going to find ourselves watching it, what are we most looking forward to? I will start that my favourite thing about the World Cup, and there's usually one... It'll be. It's a group game between two countries which have no sporting or political <laughs> history and no fathomable reason for animus, which nevertheless just descends into absolute carnage. Always my favourite. I have to say that's fun. That's fun. <laughs> that's all, that's very fun as well. But you know, you know what I really want for this World Cup. I mean, forgetting a little bit about the politics, I want 
a continent that is not Europe to win. See, I'm not even saying Latin America, even though maybe subtly. I, I think we all very much you know, know what you're saying. It, it's, been, it's been 20 years of European dominance. Enough is enough. So I think it's time for Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, or an African country like Senegal. It can even be the United States or Australia. I don't mind. But let's That's get out very, of very, Europe for a change. Very generous yes. of you, <laughs> Fernando. Um, you, Laura, what, what are you most... What, what are you most looking forward to? Well, my my journalist friends have told me that they believe the skyscrapers that have very quickly gone up in Qatar are basically empty and it's just the facades there. They've, they've just been, been, been put really quickly uh, and all construction has stopped so the migrant workers are not in view and it doesn't look like a building site. So I will be looking out for signs that the skyscrapers are either lived in or empty, which I believe they're probably empty. You, you want that camera shot round the back and it's like a Western movie <laughs> set and there's just a bunch of planks holding the... I imagine they're going to be very safe with it too. I've, I've seen they've also projected big photos of the captains of each of the 32 teams on these massive buildings. But I, I will be very interested to, in to see what, what that looks like. What I'm actually mostly looking forward to, of course, is Australia's 6-0 win over France on, on Tuesday <laughs> <Of course>. night. <laughs> that's, that's going to be huge. Um, but sticking with the subject of great global events being held in Middle Eastern states with dubious human rights records, COP27 is winding up this weekend in Egypt. Well, possibly. Today was supposed to have been the last day, but the summit has been extended until tomorrow to try and find a way through the deadlock that has descended upon talks about a fund through which countries which have benefited from the industrialisation which has caused climate change can compensate poorer countries which find themselves at the sharp end of climate change. Um, Fernando, first of all, and I suspect you may be invoking your country's president-elect here, what has most leapt out at you about COP27? Yes, I, I will do that, Andrew, because you know, you know why? Because Brazil has the power <coughs> to change things when it comes to climate change. Because, mm-hmm. of course, we, we, we host the majority of the Amazon, you know, and, you know, we've had, we had a change in leadership, which is very positive for the world if you care about the climate. And, and I think Lula's appearance there and remember, he's not the president yet, so he mm. didn't go there as a, as a state uh, leader. He apparently was welcomed like a rock star uh, there because Brazil has that that power. I mean, I remember in Rio 92 in the climate conference there, you know, and actually there was a period that Brazil was doing well, was teaching the world as well, like how to, you know, decrease uh, the levels of deforestation. So I think that was very impressive uh, to me. And, and Lula, remember, he spoke to the leaders of the United States, China, the EU, very powerful people that they have the power to change. But if I may say another thing about COP27, it's hard, those conferences. I mean, mm-hmm. from what I can see, the talks are still gridlocked and it, it's always very complicated. I know how positive everybody meeting, but okay, but what are we achieving at the end? So, and that's my concern. I mean, apparently it will end tomorrow, I believe. We just have to keep an eye on what the leaders will decide. Uh, Just to follow that up, Fernando, Lula, I believe, raised the prospect of an Amazon cop. Would, Would that have, do you think, a symbolic importance that might focus everybody on what is at stake? I think it's a fantastic idea. He was planning that for 2025, so COP30. Mm. Especially because I think many people 
I mean, they don't know what to expect uh, of a city in the Amazon region. Because I think some, especially some foreigners, people that are not from Brazil, I, they, I don't know, they expect just virgin forest everywhere. <laughs> but we have cities like Manaus, you know, I think more, a little bit over 2 million people live there. There are people living there. It would be interesting to hear their voices as well. Uh, and it might happen, you know. Uh, Lula already had the support of President Emmanuel Macron and, and other leaders. I would love that. And, and I'm glad that it's not going to be just in Sao Paulo or Rio. It's good. Let, let's go to the Amazon. But I have one concern, Andrew, if I may go say. On. I mean, what about the jets going to the Amazon? That, that's quite complicated. It, it, it is such a complex topic, actually. You, you are foreshadowing there a conundrum which has been addressed by our last guest uh, on today's yes. Daily. So, so yes. cunning continuity there from you, Fernando. Yes. Um, Laura, there has, of course, also from a UK perspective, been a, a diplomatic subtext to this COP27. Yeah, it's a question about whether climate justice can be discussed without considering human rights. So there is um, a, a Egyptian-British citizen who has been imprisoned in Egypt for the most last part, nine years, basically, because he was critical of Egypt's rulers. His name's Allah Abdel Fattah. So he began a hunger strike over seven months ago to protest his imprisonment and demand consular visit from the British embassy. And then he's escalated his strike around COP27 to include not drinking water. And and I think he had about 100 calories a day. So at the climate gathering, leaders, including the heads of Britain, France, the United States and Germany, raised the case in their meetings with the Egyptian president, al-Sisi, but the Egyptian government has made no indication that they will release him. At the time when this was all started, I spoke to one of Allah's most vocal supporters, the activist and actor Khaled Abdallah, and he attended the premiere of The Crown. He actually plays Dodi Al-Fayed in it. And I began by asking him what he thought of Prime Minister Rushi Sunak's attempts at COP to release him. Khaled, can I just ask, you've been very vocal about the case of Allah Abd Al-Fatah. You know, first of all, has the PM done enough uh, Rishi Sunak. Not, not because he's not, uh, you know, I don't know if I'm going to walk in there and walk out to news that Alet is dead. His mother was in front of the prison this morning. She was there yesterday. We are just waiting. We are looking for any sign of life. The most basic thing that could have happened while Rishi Sunak was in Sharm el-Sheikh is that consular access could have been granted to, for just a British official to be able to go in and see him, as is his legal right. And that hasn't happened. So I can't say that it's enough until he's safe. And if he dies, you know, it's been over 219 days in which he's been on various different forms of hunger strike, from not eating, you know, from eating to only eating 100 calories a day, which is why he's managed to last so long, to now being on a full water strike. If he dies, what does that say about our world? What does that say about our governments? Do you think this case is emblematic of the deteriorating human rights situation in Egypt under President Sisi? Yes. I also think it's emblematic of the way that our world, you know, what we prioritize in our world. I mean, as his sister kind of beautifully said in a press conference in COP, at great risk to herself, she said, Ale is not in prison because of the Facebook post that he shared that they, he got a ridiculous five-year sentence for. He's in prison because he's someone who makes people believe that a better world is possible. And we face a climate emergency. The world's leaders have gathered to, we hope, give us a chance, give my kids and my grandchildren hopefully a chance of a world, an inhabitable world. And if they can't get one of the people who is fighting hardest for that world out of prison, 
then what chance have we got of saving our planet? It's Allah's 41st birthday today, and um, he has ended his strike and started drinking water again. His family has visited him for the first time in almost a month, and he's getting stronger again, but they do worry that he might eventually do it again. Laura Kramer and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you both for joining us on today's Daily. You are listening to The Daily on Monocle 24 and this year's iteration of the Halifax International Security Forum kicks off today at the Western Nova Scotian Hotel in Halifax. This is the preeminent security and defence conference on the Atlantic's western shore and this year, as has been the case everywhere else on the security and defence circuit, the conversation will be dominated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Well, earlier I spoke to Janice Stein, founding director of the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy at the University of Toronto and the chair of the Halifax Forum's board. I began by asking what the big theme is going to be at this year's conference. There's no question, Andrew, that the big theme will be the war in Ukraine and what lessons the community of democracies can draw for their security and strategic policy from that war Interesting that we have really good representation from Asia, from parts of Africa. So this is not only a European war, although it feels that way, I understand, to many in Europe. But it must also feel very real in Canada more than it does in a lot of non-European countries, because Canada, of course, as you will know, outside of Russia, has the second largest Ukrainian diaspora community in the world. There's no question we have almost a million and a half Ukrainian Canadian citizens for whom this is the issue. It is front page all the time. It is, I think the cabinet has spent more time on Ukraine this year than virtually on any other issue, but it is part of a larger strategic conversation. How is the world changing? What lessons do we take from this? You know, that oft familiar phrase the liberal rules-based international order beloved by so many political leaders is clearly at risk uh, in the world that we live in today i mean obviously it has been the theme of some of the broadly similar events that monocle 24 has been attending this year like globe second bratislava the warsaw security forum and it was a question that got raised a lot at those the compare and contrast between this event and the same event this time last year so if if you think back to the last halifax forum how would you say attitudes to russia have changed in that time we're in a night and day comparison here and it's not only attitudes to russia which of course have changed dramatically there is i don't think there is anybody among the delegations that we have here who is defending russia Uh, There are people who are worried about escalation and how this war ends, but that's a wholly different conversation. But it's not, what I think is so interesting, Andrew, it's not only at European security conferences. This is the big preoccupation in Asia as well. What does this mean for us? What do we learn about the way the United States and its allies respond? What is China learning from this? And that's the theme of the forum, I think. What lessons do we all draw from a year that, frankly, 
almost nobody predicted last November. Well, indeed, indeed not. And on the subject of drawing lessons and and who they will be drawn from, I thought a good example would be if you could introduce the panel that I know you're hosting a bit later today. You'll have Canada's Defence Minister, Estonia's President, US Senator Jean Shaheen, the President of the World Uyghur Congress, who has in fact sat just opposite where I'm sitting now in this studio at least once. What's the theme of the panel? What themes in common is that disparate crowd of guests going to have to discuss? So it's really the panel, and you're right, it's a very diverse group of voices, but the theme of the panel is how do we understand security and the needs that security needs going forward? And you start in Europe with the president of Estonia who lives right next to this, probably feels more vulnerable than anybody but Poland and, or Romania and the other Baltic states for whom this feels like an existential crisis. But Jean Shaheen in the United States Senate is seized of this issue too from the perspective of what <coughs> lessons do we learn. Our own minister, this has been transformative for her. She came to the job just two years ago, largely preoccupied by internal issues in, in the Canadian Armed Forces and that agenda, although important, has been totally overtaken by this. And of course, the president of the Uyghurs has a very strong and personal perspective on China, but the issue Really, China really is deeply part of this discussion because there is debate on whether what lessons China draws from this war. And there, there's not expert consensus on that at all. I think it's a debate that is going on in China as well yeah. with respect to Taiwan. And we have a very significant delegation here from Taiwan as well. I mean, as we were alluding to earlier, there is now quite a packed circuit of security and defence forums, discussion events. You could probably spend your entire life hopping from one to the other if you felt like it. Amid that context, where would you say the Halifax event fits in? So with no slight intended to any of the ones that I do not mention, but globally, when you hear the conversation, Munich is the premier forum for Europe, frankly, and it attracts great representation from political leaders. Shangri-La in Singapore has a very substantial Asian component mm. as a kind of must-stop, and Halifax has probably the largest U.S. representation at the conference because it's such an easy cross across the border. And so we have Secretary of Defense Austin coming. We have a very large delegation from the U.S. Senate, which has always been the case, and some of its most senior members on the Senate Intelligence Committee, Foreign Affairs Committee. So if you draw that triangle, Munich, Shangri-La, Halifax, you could probably get most of what you need to understand where thinking is going. This one attracts particularly ministers of defense and chiefs of defense staff that come and have bilateral meetings that are very focused on very concrete issues. I mean, there are, of course, the public forums, such as the one that you are chairing later today that we were discussing. But I think a lot of people would be intrigued by what is listed on the agenda as the off the record sessions. Now, obviously, you can't tell us by definition exactly what goes on in those things. But can you perhaps give our listeners a flavour of what kind of conversation gets had in those things? Because part of the 
value of these conferences is, of course, that office holders who would not normally get to meet in person can actually get together and have conversations. Right. So maybe I can set the scene for your listeners, Andrew, just a little bit. The conference takes over the largest hotel Mm. in Halifax. And nobody in the hotel is not an accredited delegate to the conference. And as much time and space is given to bilateral meetings, so they take there's a floor of the hotel that people use just to meet bilaterally with all the appropriate security. And so I would be stunned if the Secretary of Defense is not having a very long private confidential meeting with our Minister of Defense and just multiply that. And it's really the, those bilateral meetings are probably the, the highest value. Move up that to the off-the-record sessions where there was a there are Chatham House rules mm. and you cannot attribute anything to anybody. You can discuss what's talked about, but you can't say Andrew said this. <laughs> <laughs> and I can't say to you after this, Andrew said this. And you know, we've had a good record because people understand the value of these conversations. So it's in these side meetings and private bilateral meetings and night owl sessions where not to suggest that we're not serious. But there's usually a good bottle of wine, some cheese, some crackers, and people come and sit and have these conversations in a much freer way than in the formal sessions. And that's the value, frankly. That was Janice Stein, chair of the board of the Halifax International Security Forum, speaking to me earlier. The event is underway now. Finally, on today's show, as we were reminded earlier when discussing COP27, climate change poses particular, in some cases existential, challenges to the geographies and economies of poorer countries situated in regions already known for volatile weather. Adding further complexity is the fact that many such countries rely heavily on tourism, and long-haul aeroplane tourism at that. Jamaica's Minister of Tourism, Edmund Bartlett, has had more cause to ponder this conflict than most. Tourism is 30% of his country's GDP. He visited Midori House on his recent visit to London, and I began by asking him how a country can encourage both tourism and climate action. Right, but there isn't really a conflict because the product of tourism is the environment. Mm. You know, that's, that's what we market. And so the sustainability of tourism is predicated on climate management. So we have an interest. We have more than a passing interest in ensuring that there is proper management of the use of our scarce resources in the atmosphere around us. Biodiversity is part of the product. We sell the richness of our biodiversity to the world. Oceans are key in terms of beaches, coral reefs and all the maritime adventures and experiences that we market. The Caribbean area and Jamaica in particular, we sell the sand, sea and sun. That's mm. the three S's that we talk about. So all of this is critical. Now, what we know, however, is that the shared responsibility for climate management cannot be ignored. That Jamaica has a responsibility, mm. so has all the other countries of the world. And yes, People travel, and that's a reality that's going to be with us until perhaps the... <laughs> <laughs> Which is hopefully a way off yet. So, so uh, the point I wanted to make on that is that it makes sense if we all recognize that we all use the carbon and we create footprints 
and so the emissions are problems overall. So what is it that we must do, each of us, to pay for it? So this is where the idea of your, the Global Tourism Resilience absolutely, Fund comes in. Absolutely. And beyond that is where the notion that there can be a resilience tip mm. that each of us pay when we consume any item at all, so which you, has to be transported, which then by its very nature utilizes carbon and creates emissions. Global tourism resilience sounds like one of those great ideas in theory. Is, is there a quick way to explain how that fund would work in practice? Well, firstly, there is need for knowledge about the phenomena around us. Mm. So the research and development, that's a big part of what the fund would be used for, to create information, glean and manage to analyze and present data that is valuable for decision-making, for action and management by countries, by companies, by individuals. Uh, secondly, to mitigate against disruptions, which are now a feature of life mm. for us, and especially as we struggle with managing climate change, to, disruptions when, when, are going to be coming, and more you, of them. When you talk about disruptions, do you mean like extreme like hurricanes, extreme weather, extreme events? weather events, yes, seismic events, and now we have to go to pandemics and epidemics. We're mm. just struggling through one. And then we have to look at cyber crimes. This is a big cyber security issue now that is facing us. And then wars, mm. like we're having and terrorism and all and the economic disruptions, such as we are experiencing so, hyperinflation and so on. So really what we're talking about is that totality of the capacity building to deal with disruptions of all types that are coming. And so the capacity of small countries to do this is at risk, as you know. The vulnerability of those countries at the highest, the resources of the countries at the lowest, and therefore the need for funding and support, which has to come from somewhere. And my argument is that if we can all pay into a pool, that fund can then be provided for all, but could be also provided for the small and medium-sized countries that are highly vulnerable mm. but weak in resource. So, so the idea is to, I guess, spread the global burden for dealing with events occasioned right. by climate exactly. change. Exactly. So, so I believe all of us have come out of this pandemic and we've all hurt in one way or another. Mm. Large countries too have hurt. Small countries have hurt. So what we need to come out of this with is a shared appreciation of the responsibility that each has and to avoid guilt trips and to avoid making others feel that it is them and not us. It's us. It's all of us. So what we need to find is collaborative efforts, joint efforts. And one of the ways that I believe we can do it is through tourism. Because 1.4 billion tourists traveled mm. across the world in 2019. And they consume. That's all they do. So the consumption pattern of the tourism, the propensity to consume, is five times that of the locals in a destination. So all of us can pay a little for that. And what do we pay? Perhaps a 1% on our meals, perhaps a 5 cent on our tickets, perhaps a three cent on our journey to a river and experience or an attraction. The argument here is that somebody who can afford to take a holiday to Jamaica can probably afford to throw in a few extra quid Absolutely on top. Absolutely not. 
Mm. And and that is something that's not beyond us. And indeed, there is a growing recognition that sustainability support is a valuable part of our responsibility and the CSR of large companies and also individuals. So we think that this is something that we need to examine a little deeper, look at, and that countries, for example, who receive large numbers of visitors can create a pool mm. of funds that will assist them in mitigation, assist them in managing disruptions when they come and recover and recover quickly and then thrive afterwards. Well, just finally, Minister, while we have you here, it would seem a shame not to ask Jamaica's Minister for Tourism to take this opportunity to do a brief advertisement for holidaying in Jamaica. What would you recommend people, someone who's never been before perhaps, is there a particular thing about Jamaica that you like to tell people about and that you think people should see or do when they're there? Well, the first and most important thing, the people of Jamaica. The people of Jamaica or iconic attraction. <laughs> and you know, when I say it regularly, but seriously, that God had Jamaica specially in mind. And <laughs> there's a view that it, Jamaica was in fact made on the eighth day of creation. <laughs> and after he had done whatever, all over the world he saw something missing. Jamaica was created. It's a special place. Jamaica has, I'd say, a confluence of ethnicity and cultures. and We are indeed a mosaic, as our motto says, out of many, one people. So a little bit of you is, is there in Jamaica because we are the composite of you all and the, our respect for diversity and our respect for human happiness and our delight in enforcing that happy moment in your life. So Jamaica is a place for you to come and find yourself. Minister, thank you for joining us. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Laura Kramer and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs> <laughs>